0: What I learned through the process is it broadens your horizons, it broadens your network, it broadens your understanding of what's possible, um, and a whole world opened up for me after that.
1: Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr John Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Simon Koz. He's a registered medical doctor and internationally recognised as a leader in digital health. Dr. Koz was the Global Chief Medical Officer at Microsoft and now heads up the Australia and New Zealand division. So let's begin. Dr. Simon Koz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. Uh, So before we talk about your experience at Microsoft as um, an executive leader and um, all things digital health, I wonder if we could go back to the beginning of your career journey and talk through, you know, what brought you into medicine?
0: Oh, look, I'm an intergenerational doctor, right? So both my parents are radiologists. And um, when I was deciding what I wanted to do, I, I had the mark. So obviously, um, medicine was up there as a choice. And surprisingly, both my doctor parents said, don't do it. Don't go into medicine. And I was interested and I asked them why. And they said, well, it's a stressful career where you're going to work really hard. And I thought, what are you asking? Um, Do I not handle stress and am I averse to hard work? And they didn't actually articulate some of the things that I found out as a practicing doctor what they were saying was that there is a system. The system has um, a way of doing things, treating patients, and um, it's not really optimized to the patient experience or the clinician experience. And they were on the receiving end of that grind. Um, But anyway, I did get into medicine. Um, It was a six-year undergrad degree when I did it. And I actually didn't really enjoy it as much because it was quite competitive and academic um, but I found conversely when I started practicing that it was team based and collaborative so I really enjoyed the practicing side of being a doctor not so much the training of being a medical student.
1: And um, obviously you went on to to seek out um, career opportunities in digital health in that undergraduate experience as well as once you became a junior doctor what were your experiences or, or thoughts around digital health and innovation?
0: I'll tell you a funny story. So I was a fifth-year medical student, and my cardiology registrar said to me on in one of our training sessions. He said, "So, what kind of doctor do you want to be?" And I went, "I don't know." And he said, "Wrong. Say I want to be a cardiologist." And I said, "Excuse me?" And he said, "Don't walk around in life just saying I don't know what to what I want to do. Um, pick something, articulate it to others. I'll help you on the journey." And I said, "Yeah, but being a cardiologist?" And he said, "Look." Being a cardiologist isn't a bad option, but let me make it even simpler for you. Guys like you and me, we've only got two options. You can only become a general practitioner and that's four years postgraduate work, or you can become some sort of specialist and that's seven years. So those are your career options. Do you want to be a GP or a specialist? And immediately I got this awful feeling of confinement that my career was being predetermined and that felt uncomfortable. And I flippantly said to him as a fifth year medical student, maybe I could retrain in IT and do something totally different. And he said, yeah, good luck, you go do that. Um, And I I think back on that because even as early as a fifth-year medical student, rather than following a predetermined career path, I wanted to explore some of the opportunities. And that certainly sat with me as I was a practising doctor on the receiving end of some of the systems that I was using, thinking that, I'm looking after these patients and they need my help, but who's looking after me as a practising doctor? Who's, who's taking ownership and carriage of the quality and safety of the care that I'm providing and the systems that I'm using? And as I started looking for that answer, I wasn't coming up with the people who were accountable and responsible for doing that.
1: And so obviously you started to, to look elsewhere. Uh, where did you first look and, and how did that sort of become the first step in, into your journey into di- digital health?
0: So I've been 20 years in digital health now and all of the people of my generation are mistakes. Um, none of us decided, I want a career in digital health. We all asked uncomfortable questions and it wasn't really a well-defined career option. So for me, it, it started with those questions Um, and not finding answers so an interest turned into almost a hobby where I was talking about what digital could be in the workplace and then as a career I eventually decided that here's an opportunity I will go out and create the sort of systems that don't exist that make sure administering medications are safe and I actually decided and I don't recommend doing this to take a formal break from medicine, retrain in technology so that I could cut code and then I would create the systems that I thought needed to be done. So I made a clean career break with medicine and I moved into the world of technology.
1: Wow, that's that's incredibly brave. I mean, how how was your sort of support systems while you were going through that? Did you have um, support from from colleagues and family and things like that or were you off on your own?
0: So I'd call it incredibly naive, um, but I had a girlfriend at the time and she's now my wife, so we've been together 25 years and she was at a career crossroads and she was um, doing what she was doing and she was saying, what should I do with my career? And I said, boy, if I had a blank slate, I'd move into technology. This is 1999, um, right before the dot-com boom, so my timing was pretty poor. But the instincts were on the money because technology is uh, an important part of our digital native lifestyle these days. And so she started a course and I was kind of vicariously studying over her shoulder and I found what she was studying was really interesting and intuitively made a lot of sense to me. So I had the opportunity to be a bit of a voyeur on um, a technology student enough that I thought this has got legs, I'll give it a go.
1: And while you're sort of exploring these new avenues, did you ever think about turning back and going back to conventional medicine or was it once you sort of got a taste, you're, you're away?
0: Yeah, so um, it's it's not as clear and successful as um, it kind of looks on the LinkedIn resume. I, I did a self-paced private college. That's where I learned to code, so it was a Diploma of Software Engineering, and my wife was supporting me while I was doing that. As a medical student, you don't build up much of a savings base, but I had enough to get by while she was supporting us through the process. And towards the end of my diploma, she got made redundant, and I was faced with a really hard question. Do I push ahead and try and get a job in technology where I don't yet have the qualifications, or? do I actually go back to practising medicine? Um, And so I experimented with a few things. One of the most notable was for two weeks I was selling energy contracts, I was door-knocking door to door, selling people in lower socioeconomic communities, um, combined gas and electricity packages for their homes. And I said two weeks because I, I had an epiphany where I just said, what am I doing? And I actually went back to uh, working as a locum emergency doctor. And serendipitously, um, that was really hard to suck it up and go back to emergency. But one of the kids that I was looking at, and he had a respiratory condition, his dad was in digital health. And we just got talking while this kid was in observation. And he said, did you go for the X job in the paper last week? And I went, no, I didn't even see it advertised. Um, But that was a job that I went for. And it was with a um, digital health startup called Track Health that later on got acquired by InterSystems, who were always the technology behind it. And they were putting in the combined uh, patient admin and electronic medical record systems for the state of Queensland. So they'd won that contract and they were gearing up their resources ahead of that. So I found my job in digital health when I decided that I couldn't get a job in digital health and with clinical practice
1: Wow so with that um, story did you end up sort of finishing up your rotation and, and going full-time into this job into systems or how did that work yeah so
0: it was a product specialist role they called it um, we'd call it a business analyst role these days um, and I turned up for the interview And because I was locuming, I didn't need to give notice to anything and I could start the next day. And pretty much that's exactly what happened. I turned up to the interview and they said, we need someone who understands healthcare processes, um, can listen to what the customer is asking for, turn it into um, functional documentations that our developers can code against. And then we need someone on the back end of what they've delivered to do some QA checking. So you'll be part of a team of product specialists. And because you're a doctor, you'll be looking after a lot of the clinical side of things. Um, And so it was a pretty comprehensive electronic medical record, patient administration um, product, quite far-reaching. It had kind of outpatient scheduling and doctor's workbench, ordering meds, RISPACs, laboratory information systems, all of that sort of stuff. And so I got a broad view of technology that was supporting basically hospital systems.
1: And it sounds like, a, as, as you say, a broad view, but also a very foundational series of, of skill sets and experiences, you know, c- gathering requirements and and uh, being that bridge between the, the technologists and the, the clinicians. What was that like?
0: From a foundation perspective, it was absolutely a baptism by fire because you were thrown right in and you, it's like, go ahead and do it. In hindsight, if I was coaching people leaving clinical medicine, I think the foundation is really important. And I think um, kind of advisory and consultancies where they do that kind of process improvement or management consulting to healthcare organisations can give you a really strong foundation. So I went into a startup with a weak foundation and I didn't know what I didn't know. So um, in retrospect, that small company was flying by the seat of its pants, living contract to contract and had landed the whale of a contract to do the whole of a state health system when they only had a couple of hundred people themselves. The product was already global um, and what it meant is the requirements had to be harmonised with not just what Australia was asking for but what other regions were asking for and some of the functionality didn't really mesh. So in India, I didn't realise this at the time, you can place... um, a surgical order for the whole ward. You can have a ward full of patients and you can say, we're, we're going to amputate the right legs. And you can place that singular order for everyone on the ward. And that was a bit of functionality that they wanted to support their Indian processes, but it would go into the communal code base. So that would then be available for new for. Queensland Health when they deployed the system. And I was thinking, hang on a second, this is a this is a safety issue. If this capability exists, somehow I need to gate it. So um, those are some of the things that I struggled with early on, finding my clinical voice when I didn't yet have my technical voice. Um, but in the two years that I was there, I found how to speak the language of not just clinical, which I spoke and understood well, but also the language of Technical, so that I could let that clinical expertise flow through into the product, and then back into what we ship as code.
1: That's fascinating. I mean, it can be very difficult to position yourself appropriately in these types of programs because of a lot of our clinical reflections and and approaches to risk can be um, somewhat, somewhat managed and mitigated by our own practices. You know face-to-face with the person, Uh, but when you're looking at a system and you're scaling it across um, thousands of people, uh, it can be really difficult to to figure out how to manage that risk and and quality control and safety. Uh, What was your experience of of that like?
0: That's a really interesting point because when you're putting digital systems in, your opportunity is not just to digitise the existing process with all of its inefficiencies and mistakes, but to re-engineer the process so that you're taking advantage of the digital capability. And you need to do that, understanding that the workforce that you're going to ask to use these products is going to go through a bit of a change management culture shift as they move from the old to the new. So you've got to be sensitive to it, but also allow it to happen. So um, after I finished up with Track Health, I spent six years at Cerner. and, And Cerner was a really good grounding in an organization that did this at enterprise scale properly across the world. Um, And I was going through a project where we were implementing for the state of New South Wales and we were out at one of the larger metro districts and we were doing a current state process analysis. And their current state process of pathology ordering were. of course, the doctors would go ahead and they would write out the request forms. I want a full blood count, I want electrolytes, I want liver function tests or that sort of stuff on a paper pad. They'd sign it, they'd bag it with the specimen and offer to go to pathology. But one of the exception processes that you can do in a paper-based world that the electronic system didn't cater for is um, they would pre-sign a whole bunch of blank pathology Um, requests and they'd sit at the nurse's flight desk and they'd use them to bag up urine samples where the nurses had a high index of suspicion that this person's got a UTI um, and they would use those pre-filled pathology requests and so the question was obviously okay well in your system how do you pre-sign these things and we said hang on a second is that legal and they said well no it's not legal but it's really important for our workflow So, so that was the first thing it was really interesting to see that. I don't think I really understood how important it was to make people feel like this system has been designed for them. But the even the user interface of the CERNA scheduling system had on the side of it a spiral bound notebook um, because many of the admin clerks who were doing the scheduling were moving from paper to digital and it looked like um, kind of their their sketchbook with the spiral bound notepad. So they built that into the user interface. Now, as we progress, we've got a highly digitally capable society, yet the way we're doing digital for healthcare often comes at it from the system of record perspective. So I'm familiar with the paper record, now I need a digital record, it's got to do exactly the same thing. When in fact, digital allows us to do things quite differently. We can do voice recognition directly into the record. We can have artificial intelligence and active clinical decision support occurring through that process as well. The record can be viewed by multiple people at multiple times. The information in it can be filtered so that you get summary views. So I think making sure that you take advantage of digital capabilities to not just digitize the process, but actually digitally transform is really important.
1: I wanted to pick up on an interesting point you made around the the clash between sort of best practice um, and sometimes what is sort of good practice in areas of complexity or uh, or sometimes even in, in chaos when there's scenarios that that require a, a different uh, approach and threshold for risk where uh, analog workflows give us a little bit more flexibility there, and I just wondered how does how does technology better you know augment and support those more complex type of scenarios?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good question. So um, I think about the paper medical record and even with its um, manual processes, there was an elegance to it because I as a doctor could take that paper record and I could take it room to room. I could efficiently and quickly see patients, um, make my notes and then move on. My workflow, my rounding process was actually really quick. All of a sudden you introduce um, a clinical record, a digital record, and unless you've provisioned mobility for the clinician, now you're asking them to go see the patients, maybe capture some manual notes, and then in non-real time, go back to the nurse's station, um, access, maybe there's a fight for terminals because there's not enough of them, Into the records there before going on to the next patient. So you've impacted the productivity of the clinical worker by putting in these digital tools. So all of the downstream benefits of quality and safety and viewability and legibility are offset by the productivity tax of the way you've chosen to do it. So really important to consider... Not just the electronic medical record, which creates that longitudinal medico, legal historical record of the patient, but also the portfolio of technologies that bring that to life. And in this case, it would be mobility, it would be workflow, security is really important, but also the whole process of delivering care is quite collaborative. So how do the communications and collaborations occur? Because unless you're proactively thinking that through, you're going to end up with sticky notes, you're going to end up with shadow you're going to end up with orphan processes, and all of that at worst fragments the information that should be in the record. At, sorry, at best, at worst, it becomes a bit of a leaky bucket that becomes a security concern too.
1: I think another interesting thing is around uh, how these big health organizations try to uh, build into the processes consistency and that they become uh, bureaucracies that are, are attempting to yeah, have, have a consistent approach to the same kinds of problems. And that sort of smashes right up against health professionals' needs to be uh, a bit more flexible. And sometimes these digital tools can sort of cater for that that one group without catering for the other. And so I really appreciate what you, you said there around these, these areas need to be uh, considered. And I think from a clinician standpoint, uh, we do need to reflect on, the constraints that other stakeholders are bringing to the table?
0: There's benefits that accrue at different levels, and sometimes the recipient of the benefits aren't the people who are being asked to modify, change their workflow, um, that sort of stuff. So when, when we started to put in some of these core backbone electronic medical record PAS systems, the business case was about how do we decrease duplicative pathology servicing, overordering. how do we make the record viewable to other people, how is it legible, and none of that mattered to the clinician who was there trying to use the system, struggling with the fact that they don't touch type, they don't have access, all of that sort of stuff, and that's the old way of doing clinical systems almost as a digital as a as an IT project nowadays we actually have the um, the benefit of letting system level benefits accrue while we're providing user interfaces and capabilities that actually assist with the clinical workflow. Um, and so, from a project management methodology perspective, once upon a time we used to buy these monolithic systems and we do what's called a waterfall implementation. And that's where you sit in a, in a kind of closed tent for two years and you configure all the elements of the system and you roll it out, and there's a degree of standard standardisation. But what we know is for clinicians, there's huge degrees of variance and that variance is important to how they deliver the care. Um, Now, Nowadays, it is possible to have that back-end consistency where you have some variability on the front end. Um, And so the project management of implementing clinical systems has shifted to agile types of design where you can come up with They call it a minimum viable product, but you basically identify the process that you want to do, deploy it in a rather rough state, get some feedback and then enhance it over time. And so now Gartner is talking about this concept of a digital health platform that takes care of a lot of the integration and the plumbing and the security and the um, standardization of the data schema. But then on the front end, if you've got a proper digital health platform, you can have configurable workflows that are either no code or low code, such that you can make things quite tailored and personal. And what that means is, rather than being on the receiving end of a user interface that's quite fixed because you've bought it for the back end benefits, instead you can have something that's fast, mobile, adaptive, Grows with you when you still achieve that consistency over time on the back end.
1: Just to hone in a little bit further on that, would that mean that um, you know certain health systems would have would still be able to have sort of multiple uh, different applications serving the different services needs, but uh, on the back end with this this platform approach, would have you know some consistency on the way that the data is is collected and then and then pushed out again.
0: So the way I like to think about it is you've got a, a permanent record, but not everything that happens in the care process or, or the patient journey makes its way into the clinical record. So you, you do an electronic medical record process and without directly thinking through all of those extraneous things, they're going to become orphan processes. Um, and so it's quite interesting to go into a place that has deployed a digital system for clinicians to use, and then see what's provisioned and what's not, those often processes, there's a high degree of variance, and that's where a lot of the inefficiency sits in healthcare. And that's an opportunity to lean in with probably some modern tools to support them. Eliminate some of that variance, open up some of that visibility and transparency to other members of the care team, provide a more secure and robust platform to manage that um, that brings everyone back into it.
1: And I imagine as well, you know, extending this further, uh, it's, it's bringing the patient and the family in um, to be you know, active participants in the way that their care is being managed because uh, no, no one else uh, in the care team has more of a stake in, in the outcome than the patient and the family, right? So that is
0: that is one of the modern shifts that's really interesting and it's challenging our health system. Um, So I've got a background in hospitals and in hospitals we ask the patients to become subordinate to our processes and a lot of the systems and processes are geared at the efficiency either of the organisation or the clinician at the expense of the patient experience. Um, but outside the hospital context, you're talking about primary and community care. And those domains, in those domains, health is a service just like any other service in our modern society. And it's interesting to see how the experience of booking travel, you think about ride share or um, booking flights these days, Um, retail or banking, you think about how those services have changed over the last decade or two. They define the standard of what good service looks like, um, where the consumer, the end user, is empowered usually by a digital app that gives them visibility to their activity and their history and their interactions allows a degree of self-management, autonomy and choice. And then when the consumers actually get to interact with the service, there's there's a relatively equal footing where the consumer feels like they're empowered to a degree. In healthcare, it's quite different. There's a big asymmetry of information the health organisation or the health practitioner is capturing that information from the patients and they've got the specialised knowledge to interpret what that means. They do tests where the tests come back and the patients don't really know what it means and it has to be interpreted for them. And so the patient is a bit disempowered. Um, But during COVID, we've recognised that patient engagement and consumer-centred care really matters because that's what people are expecting these days. And because it's a relatively new shift for healthcare, the systems don't necessarily exist within the healthcare domain to support those models of care. But we know what the bones of them look like because they've been done in other industries.
1: I would add to that, uh, at times the culture from the from the uh, health professional side is still, is still learning as well. I think there's a bit of a hangover from the sort of paternalistic days of old where um, all the control and power sort of sat. Uh, with the clinicians, and I think uh, something that we forget is is waiting for information or having information presented to you that creates uncertainty or doubt uh, is is a form of harm and, and suffering. And so I think uh, you're exactly right. You know, COVID has shown a, a bit of a light on this, but there's still a lot for us to to learn in terms of really thinking about that whole experiential approach to healthcare and it's just a little bit bizarre that healthcare has been so far behind uh, all of these other industries
0: i think there's probably a continuum and there are some circumstances where doctor knows best if you've got a um, unconscious patient coming through to your emergency department with the trauma you're not going to take the time to ask patients how they're feeling and all the rest of it you're going to get on with the job and you're going to make decisions and you're going to patch them up and save lives Um, but epidemiologically, the burden of disease in our society has shifted from when we created the hospital system a few hundred years ago, where yeah. they were dealing with battlefield trauma and infectious disease. Now the game is chronic disease. How do we actually affect life, risk-induced lifestyle illnesses that result in chronic disease and then help patients manage those. And in those instances, it's really behaviour modification, um, increasing of health literacy, empowering patients to self-manage. Those are the things that need to be done to actually get on top of chronic disease. And... Um, that's that's an entirely different model. You don't see patients episodic, um, episodically every six weeks, check how their blood pressure has been going, um, and say, "Oops, that's no good. Let's let's change this." You give people access to consumer grade or clinical grade devices to check their own blood pressure, record that information, and then engage in a kind of coaching discussion about how we're we doing this together, and that's quite a shift.
1: Uh, there are so many other, you know, well positioned well trained healthcare providers to support people uh, in these areas it all doesn't have to come uh, to the doctor or the nurse you know there there are other amazing people who are super helpful and, and sometimes the right people to, to to be delivering and supporting some of these messages and I'd add into that as well as around the social determinants of health we're learning how important you know housing access to uh, a job and, and, and income um a clean environment all of these kinds of things are vastly integrated into the well-being of of populations and individuals and so I, i'm happy to hear that there is this this shift in that direction but there's still uh, so much uh, to do
0: so i see all of that in my role across australia and new zealand today at microsoft but i was lucky enough to spend three years as a global chief medical officer so i was based in um, seattle and um, I learned a little bit about the US, but I also got to travel and I saw health systems around the world. Um, one thing that jumped jumped out at me when you were speaking about using the extended health workforce, including nurses and allied health, was this concept of top of license care. And I hadn't come across it before going to the US, but it is this concept that if you're a doctor and you've got postgraduate education in a specialty, You shouldn't be sitting there spending your time doing uh, routine admin and filling out forms if there's someone else who's able to do that job. You should be uniquely applying the talents you've got and then using a tiered approach to workforce to make sure the rest of the stuff gets done. And I think unfortunately we ask our clinicians to do a whole lot of administrative uh, and routine tasks that we could use a workforce more effectively to do. Uh, And then when you talk about social determinants of health, I've seen other countries that do it particularly well. So I'd call out the Nordics because I think they're quite incredible. Um, They're highly socialised in their approach to not just healthcare but whole-of-government services. And the country of Finland is pretty extraordinary. Um, So Helsinki University System, HUS, is a series of hospitals that deal with about 60% of the healthcare, the acute healthcare services that go through the, the Finnish system. Um, but HUS actually works hand in glove with government services. So when you talk about uh, welfare, when you talk about housing, when you talk about education, all of them are interlinked. And in fact, when you talk about the flip side of health, which is wellness, wellness starts so early, it's antenatally where kids get enough nutrition. It's in the early years where they're getting enough education. It's then the early years of their working lives where they've got the right access to safe housing, to, um, to income, all the rest of it. And by the time we get to later in life and someone's got chronic disease, um, if we've inherited cumulatively um, problems and risk factors from earlier in life, it's very hard to make a difference later on. So I do think we need a more holistic lifetime view of how we manage health for people in our society.
1: I just want to go back a couple of steps to ask about what was your experience of clinical leadership because obviously you're in a clinical leadership role now. I'm curious about your more formative years and what clinical leadership meant to you and maybe if there were some meaningful experiences along the way.
0: That's been an evolution over time for me. So I started out coming from a very technology-centric view about how technology might make a difference for the health system and the experience of clinicians and patients. And I thought it was just about creating the right application or getting the right application and then using it properly. What I found as the projects that I was moving stepped up in scale is that I realised you can choose the best App. You can choose the best tool, but unless you wrap it into a change program that properly engages clinicians early, solicits their input, gets their buy-in, and then you have champions through the process who are able to advocate to their constituents and bring people along the way, you're not going to realise the benefits of that investment Um, and so now I realise it's more about the human factors when we drive digital change and the the key point of failure that was cited for a lot of electronic medical record projects and this this comes out of the US that has been doing it for a lot longer at bigger scale than we have in Australia was the involvement in clinicians. Um, if they're supportive, excited um, and own the process then it'll be successful. If they're resistant and it's approached like a, um, a technology process um, it will fail and so here in Australia because we were we were moving along the journey of digital maturity in hospital later than the u.s we actually didn't have the right sort of empowered positions that are required for the success of these projects you wouldn't do an emr project in the u.s without a chief medical information officer a chief nursing information officer and sometimes they have chief allied health information officers and these are people who have practised in those roles. So that's their clinical background. Um, they work hand in glove with the IT function. Sometimes they report up through them or sometimes it's it's more of a matrixed collaboration where they work together. Um, but they are responsible for the change management. So their job is to identify issues before they happen and point that out and work with the IT function. Um, their job is to... Um, explain the rationale back to their clinical groups, solicit their engagement where and when it makes sense. And then through the rollout process, um, there's the whole concept of advocacy, training, um, champions that are really integral to the the change management process. Um, And so that's really important. I've seen that function across Australia and New Zealand step up. Now we do have these roles. But the whole function of clinical leadership in digital change still needs to step up. It's kind of like if it's a token um, where, oh, we've got one clinician as part of it, that's not enough. Everyone needs to be understanding the why why this is happening and appreciating the benefits to actually fully engage through it I think we can still go away to develop the clinical leadership required not just for digital projects but all sorts of change as we vary our models of care into the future.
1: Do you sort of see any changes in in the way that that pipeline is being created where you know maybe earlier or mid-career health professionals are moving more and more into the space and being better positioned to uh, deliver on those kinds of projects and those roles you suggested? So
0: I mentioned that people of my generation have found their way into digital health as a mistake, but actually digital health is now a legitimate career option and there are many entry points to it. I see everyone from um, medical students anticipating with enthusiasm what, what digital will mean and wanting to be involved, all the way through to practicing clinicians who identify opportunities or frustrations to the very very senior specialists who then um, want to leave a legacy along the way. And I think there's different ways that all of those people can get involved. I think the the junior clinicians can actually engage in some of those change processes that are already occurring within their organisations. And in supporting that change process, they can actually get exposure to clinical skills, some of these processes of large uh, program project management, um, and just open your eyes about what's possible in terms of um, non-traditional career option, the kind of non-traditional career option that I've had, um, through to people who have a more detailed, in-depth working of the care management process, I think after several clinical years you've got enough um, experience under your belt to be of real importance to professional services organizations who are doing process change or driving digital initiatives large large large-scale change so there are a bunch of those types of things all the way up to um, very, very well-paid specialists who are interested in digital health. Now, sometimes I have to recalibrate expectations. We're not all like Elon Musk um, sitting on the top of large empires earning billions of dollars. Um, And maybe the way that they can best support the process is in an advisory function. So continue doing your role, but um, there are startups who need that kind of medical expertise um, and roles that don't involve you giving up your day job, where they can participate through that process. And if we had that multi-tiered, multi-layered approach to clinical leadership, where we don't just provide patient care, but we think about how to improve the processes and the tools that we use for all of our peers to do that and leave a legacy over time then I think we'd actually have greater success in driving digital change in health I think it's a culture of change
1: I I think uh, adding to that clinicians are are used to a bit more of a of a roadmap you know you do this training and you become this kind of person and so you know if there's any ways of 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 creating these sorts of um, you know it doesn't have to be perfect, but you know skill sets and uh, experience acquisitions that kind of people can can build up a portfolio of of um, types of experiences that can be really fruitful not only as an individual uh, but also professionally. I'd love to touch on your experience doing um uh, an mBA what was that like and what was what was your decision around to jump into that yeah
0: so um on the education side of things. I, as a clinician, and many of the peers that I speak to think that you have to go get the right sort of qualification before you can do anything productive. And I'd like to myth bust that, um, especially in digital change. If you're a practicing clinician and you've got some smart ideas and you can actually lean in, you don't need to get some sort of formal qualification like a diploma of software in engineering or an MBA. But many of us think that we need to do that as a gate before we can contribute effectively. But that's kind of how. How we're trained. I had to do a medical degree before I could practice as a doctor. I thought I needed a Diploma of Software Engineering before I could work in a digital health organisation. I probably didn't. Um, but I really enjoyed my MBA. Um, so as an undergraduate, medical student, there were a few things that were lacking in my education. The first was digital skills. There was nothing. We didn't learn about technology, yet we're expected to use that every day. And the other thing is business. Um, And many doctors, at least, go out to start up small businesses, whether that's as a GP or a specialist, and there was no no fundamentals of business. So it was a really lacking part of my education. I found when I was working at Cerna, having spoken, being able to speak the language of clinical and technology, I was still lacking the language of business. And that meant that I couldn't compellingly articulate my viewpoint to chief executives um, at the board level. I couldn't, My my knowledge wasn't, actionable. So the MBA was a really um, remedial degree for me, um, but I really enjoyed it. Unlike medicine, where it was a lot of right learning, and I'm, I'm good at right learning, I've got, a, I've got a good memory, I can regurgitate lists. Um, my MBA was all open book. And rather than being individual, which is what I, I didn't like in medical studenting, it was highly collaborative. So I came together and I did an executive MBA, so it took me four years uh, part-time, or but I could still keep my day job. I was coming together with people from the banking sector, from the government sector, from the recording industry, all these diverse people with different career tracks that I'd never been exposed to, so that was fun. Working on content that I found engaging, it almost felt like I was being fed some of the the reasons behind things that I'd never really appreciated but I'd been on the receiving and I was like oh that's how marketing works oh that's how people management works I found it really exciting so I enjoyed my MBA thoroughly Um, the risk is this is what they told me going into the MBA they said um 80% of you within the first two years after getting your MBA will change your jobs, if not your industry. And I wasn't doing my MBA to change my job or my industry. So I kind of thought, well, I'm going to be one of those 20%. But what I learned through the process is it broadens your horizons, it broadens your network, it broadens your understanding of what's possible. Um, And a whole world opened up for me after that.
1: I love that comment around broadening what's possible because I think in healthcare, we we can be limited by our imaginations when we've only ever worked in one industry, we've only ever spent time with the same types of people who have gone through the same kinds of processes as us. And uh, you know there is so much to learn from other industries. So what I wanted to go to now was your experience as Global Chief Medical Officer at at Microsoft. uh, And I'd just love to learn a little bit more about what that experience was was like for you, how the transition into that role looked, and maybe any key takeaways you took from from such a uh, incredible role.
0: Yeah, so I've um, never had a, a, a career hero that I've looked up to. But at points along the way, I've had various people who've been several steps ahead of me and I've taken some life lessons from them. So when I was at Track Health, there was a medical doctor working in management, managing that team. And I thought, huh, management, I could manage a team one day. When I was over at Cerner, my boss was a care transformation consultant. She was a nurse who had an MBA. Um, and I was thinking, wow, driving process change organisationally and it was an international role It was actually very impressive. I was thinking, wow, imagine if I could do that someday. When I came to, across to Microsoft, um, the existing chief medical officer was just a super impressive character. He'd been at Microsoft over a decade. Uh, And so when I came to Microsoft, I was looking for people like me to model myself on, to learn from, he became my mentor. So for seven years, I'd bring him down to Australia once or twice a year, he'd talk to our customer base, people looked forward to his visits, he always shared his wisdom from around the world. And in that time, because he was a mentor, he became a a dear friend. Then obviously when he was thinking about the next stage of his career, which was retirement, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you ought to to chuck your hat in the ring. Um, I was honored and humbled and a bit scared, um, but that's exactly what I did. And with his support, he coached me and helped me through the process. And ultimately I was lucky enough to get the gig. Um, And so that's how I became Global Chief Medical Officer because I'd been doing it for this region in Australia, and yes, it was a step up. All of a sudden, I was doing it globally, but I had the bones of it. Um, So the bones of it at Microsoft are to support the team, to give them advisory of how health organisations work, think, and how to spot opportunities and, and, and support customers along their journey. To support partners. So, Microsoft has a big, broad network of partners, and they need kind of some of that advisory, but they also need help opening doors and getting to people and navigating networks, and then getting involved in customer projects as well, especially around novel change. Um, And so, I view the opportunity to go to the US and be the global chief medical officer as a logical evolution. Um, and there are things you know and things you don't know. Um, it was the things that I didn't know about working in a global role that I actually found the most exciting.
1: It sounds like you've constantly been up for a challenge and up to learn new things. What do you think it is that's given you the motivation to be taking on these types of uh, new and exciting roles?
0: I I am think about this really simply. I think about impact. Um, so in my working career, I want to have impact and the type of impact I want to have is progressing um, digital change for the betterment of healthcare sustainability um, and the experience of people engaging in the healthcare system, clinicians and patients. So when I think about impact, what does that mean for me personally? I need three things. I need the right skills, the right role, and the right company. Um, And so for me, the right skills, are um, some of it's formal, some of it's informal, but it's that nexus of being able to speak clinical, technical, and business. So I've got that now. I've got the skills and also some of the practising experience to be able to um, do that. Then there's the right role. If I had all of those skills, but I was working as a, as a technical specialist at Microsoft, I wouldn't reach my potential. So Australian New Zealand Chief Medical Officer, I can apply that. I've got the right title to get involved at the right level and credibly carry that conversation. And then it's got to be an organisation that's at the forefront of digital change in health. So there are a few of them. Microsoft is doing a great job globally and I love being a part of that. But for me, it looks like if I want to maximise my impact, Right skills, right role, right company.
1: I wonder, as a maybe a final question, if you were to give yourself some advice back earlier in your career um, or someone else uh, thinking about moving into digital health, what sorts of things would you tell them to, to prompt them on their way? So
0: I'd ask hard questions rather than Tell them um, because sometimes you find out about yourself along the process, and sometimes you've got to do the wrong things to understand what you like. Um, and and so I'd ask about. How do you think you can have impact? So the first thing is, I'm, I'm assuming everyone wants to have impact, but how do you want to have impact and what do you want to do? Once you know what that looks like, and it can be it can be loose. Um, so driving digital change and changing experience—that's pretty loose. Um, but then think about well, where do you want to do that? Do you want to do that from within the public sector of of the um, health delivery or do you want to be an external commercial force um, applying that do you want to work for a big organization or do you want to work for a small organization do you want to manage a team or do you want to be an individual contributor all of these things i've come to my answer the hard way so when i returned from um, the us as global chief medical officer i was the ceo of a startup and that was amazing. I actually learned more about myself in 15 months than I had in, in many years because all of a sudden I was a generalist running a team in a small organisation and I realised um, the areas that I was strong and the areas I was, I was not strong at and it helped me crystallise where I have my greatest impact and that's as an individual contributor in a commercial organ, large commercial organisation at the forefront of digital change
1: one thing I'm taking away is around this idea of, of trying things. Uh, I think that um, the, you know, life is short and, and that there are so many interesting opportunities out there for clinicians to try new things. And as you said, you know, some of these sorts of things are, are to learn what you don't like and what you do like and you never really know until you, till you head down those directions. So, um, Simon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation.
0: Uh, It's been a delight, John. I'm looking forward to um, continuing the conversation and following your podcast.
1: And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask, this is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.